0: I hope you have your Bible with you this morning and would invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, which is our series currently, at least for the summer, and we'll be looking in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And while you're finding your place there, I thought I would mention one announcement that was not uh, published in your bulletin. But it has to do with uh, some things that we discussed in our prior business meeting. It's been some months, and the vote was to proceed with phase two of our building plan. Now, that involves a lot. It's a big endeavor. It'll take some time, both to raise the money and to complete construction. But we're going to plan a meeting for this August. And uh, we'll have lots of information to tell you and maybe some time for question and answer. But from uh, now till then through the month of July, uh, you'll be getting some emails uh, with a little bit here, a little bit there, a uh, save the date, and plans for uh, that meeting that will take place on a Sunday evening in the FLC in the month of August. So uh, make sure it doesn't go to your spam folder. You'll be asking other people, what is it that I missed? But with that said, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, let's read the whole chapter and then we'll pray, ask the Lord for help in understanding and obeying, and then we'll take it apart piece by piece, put it back together, and we'll conclude with observing the Lord's table. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better than for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice... Even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that themselves are but beasts. For what happened to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. A man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And this is God's word. Let's bow once more and ask him for his help. Father in heaven, Lord, we do ask that you open to us the things in these scriptures that we are to know and understand. And Lord, give us what is necessary to be obedient to them, to change our lives where they need to change. Lord, we thank you for this time together as brothers and sisters with our Bibles open. Lord, bless other churches doing this very thing. Open to them to understand and obey Your Word. We ask all this in Your precious name. Amen. Well, let's open with a a big thought. Uh, It is part of living well to accept two things. First, that we are limited by the bonds of time. And second, that God is not. That is a big thought. I would would assume most of us in this room are are wearing a watch. You usually check it in a service like this to see how long it is before you get to go home or eat. Some churches put it on the wall. I struggle at times to fit things in. I've reduced my notes. When I got here, it was five pages. Shortly after that, it was four pages. I bring no more than three pages to an AM service and no more than two to a Wednesday night and sometimes I'm wondering now maybe the fewer the words the more I fill in and filling in is what's the dangerous part that makes them longer (laughs) I'm experimenting as the preacher in this book has done but to think about that we're limited by the bounds of time but God is not and as such though we may appear to be writing the story of our lives you made the decision to get out of bed You've made the decision to put on what you're wearing. You'll make the decision, if you've not already, as to where to eat. You're writing your story, but at the same time, there is one who transcends all time, who has not only seen what you decided today, but what you'll decide tomorrow. He's seen the beginning and the end. Time doesn't affect him. It, it's like a forever present, and he has access to it all. Whether or not we spend eternity in heaven with him was decided before the foundation of the world. So there is a stretch from our perspective to see from his perspective. And most of it's an impossibility. But we've got a, a, a poem like this, a chapter that has us speaking about time. I think it's about 28 different times that the word time is mentioned. At this point we probably expect the Solomon of Ecclesiastes to say something discouraging about time too, because everything he has said so far, in some way, has been discouraging. He's walked all over us in many ways. Uh, Instead, and this is great, he credits the orderliness of God and his creation with a very beautiful and famous poem, famous enough to be co-opted by the birds. They made quite a lot of money using basically what he said verbatim with the song, Turn, Turn, Turn. This is used in weddings. This is used in weddings of people who don't know their Bibles or Jesus because they're beautiful either way. But the chapter ends with prose. That is, if you're, if you're looking, part of it's copied down in the form of poetry and the others not. Prose means not poetry for those not familiar with that term. But in the prose, where the chapter ends, it's more reminiscent of the preacher's direct approach so far. He's going to say that we and the animals are the same. We both die and turn into dust that we came from. But just as the created order has its rhythmic patterns, so our lives experience our own regularities and cycles that ebb and flow, like the tides or the seasons or the weather And the statement in verse 1, if we look back there, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, is fleshed out in the remainder of the verses in the poem, verses 2 through 8, by use of a literary device that pairs opposite extreme positions, side by side, as a means of embracing everything that lies between them. Now, we read through once, but without giving you clues as to how it's put together, you might not have noticed that that's the way it's put together. Let me give you an example of that. If you look at a time to be born and a time to die, those are opposites, but they're paired together, and what they encompass captures the whole of life as being something that has a time for its beginning and a time for its end and a time for everything else that happens between those two points. Just like every one of the headstones out here in the cemetery, have a date, person was born, a date when they die, and a dash. The dash covers everything else. Cram a lot in that little dash, don't you? But then again, this Solomon here has described it all as a breath that's here one minute and it's gone the other, where a dash seems kind of uh, perfect for such a designation. Uh, There are others, uh, a time to weep, time to laugh. Well, that covers everything that happens in life on an emotional level. You've got laughing on one extreme and crying on the other, but there's a lot of other emotions that are in the middle there. And who knows? The list is jumbled quite all the time. Our emotions sometimes uh, strike without warning. And then a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I put this one in here because we had a test case for about, what, 18 months where we refrained from embracing. There's a time for that, Uh, which basically gives us... uh, covers our relationships, right? There's some you embrace. There's some relationships. It's a relationship, but it's not the embracing type. Well, this poem seems to cover... Everything. Most of the categories seem to be opposites and are seen as straightforwardly, good or bad, where there is a right time and a right way to expect good results as a result. Results as a result. Shouldn't have wrote that down. Get bad marks for that in English class, wouldn't I? However... Some seem ambiguous, there are a couple of them in here, like a time to seek and a time to lose, as really either one could be seen as favorable or unfavorable, usually if you're seeking it's because you don't have something, and if you're looking for something it's because you need to find it, maybe, maybe you're looking for something you don't want to find, so there's a little bit of ambiguity there, but the point of the whole poem is that life is complex, It's full of good times, bad times, hard times, in between times with decisions, interruptions, changes, miscalculations, tragedies, celebrations, failures and there seems to be a time for all of it. A time for everything. I wrote down uh, or uh, to quote uh, from David Gibson. He's one of the authors of, of a commentary, one of the resources I've used to put these messages together. He says, Observe as well how the combined effect of the poem puts flesh on the skeleton of a human life. There are seasons of the world that act upon us like war and peace, but almost every pair in the poem involves our connectedness to others between the moments of our life and death. We dance at a wedding and then mourn the loss of the one we danced with. We laugh together. And then we weep for what the people we used to laugh with have done to us. Without thinking, we reach out and touch. But we instinctively respect a different emotional and physical boundary with someone else. We grow to love some. We come to hate others. And you could go on and on, but I thought he put that together well. And just think of how our lives would flatten out into monotony if we were to remove the cycles and the patterns and the web of relationships that overlap and twist together through our whole lives. Uh, if, if, If you think about it, say, in someone's home, there is a daughter who then becomes a sister. And then at some point she goes off to school and makes a friend. And eventually she'll meet a young man and become a wife. And then given enough time, perhaps she'll become a mother. More times she becomes a grandmother. Maybe even a great-grandmother. Sometime in there she may become a widow. Now each of those has their beginning and they're usually easy to spot. But some of those overlap others perhaps by decades. And the end of some of those seasons may come rather abruptly without plan or warning. But it's life and you wouldn't want to change any of that. Or if you had charge of the recipe, a little more of this and a little less of that, could you do such a thing? Do you have such control over such a thing? It's quite hard to tell. There are seasons, and the point of this poem is that God gives us each of them. There's also a lot of pain in this poem. Uh, If you were to just count up the negative words, there's killing, there's tearing down, weeping, mourning, hating, warring with one another. And we've already studied numerous times in this study alone that uh, this side of the garden, the world is cursed. The things that we want to do, we don't do, and the things we don't want to do, we do. Paul tells us the people we love the most, we tend to hurt the most. So we're sinners. The world is cursed. We're in need of a Savior. That is still quite at play in the implications of this poem. That, and we know despite the real decisions we make every day, these seasons are almost completely and totally out of our hands. I'll tell you what I complained about this week. You don't know what I complained about? Those goofy gnats down there on our property where we're trying to build a house. They don't know that I'm going to plant things for them to live in and fly around. It's going to be nicer than the way they had it, but it's changed, and I'm sure they're upset. So they try to get in my eyes while I'm doing whatever. It's been hot. I mean, hot, hot. When I moved from Virginia, I remember it being hot, but I don't remember it being this humid. Either that or I'm just working outdoors most, more than I have since we moved here but what difference other than bringing in a big monster fan and plugging it in what can I do? I did bring a big monster fan and plugged it in but about every eight minutes or so the fuse would pop and I'd have to put down what I was doing and walk a hundred yards and push the little button next to the yellow light and make it come back on some of the stuff you can control some of the stuff you can't most of it's out of our hands and then the Solomon of Ecclesiastes comes to a conclusion, at least as far as his poem goes, and he starts explaining himself. What do you gain from this? And his answer is the same as any of the rest. Nothing. Basically, the smack of finality, you're dead. And after that poem, as beautiful as it is, is over. That's the end of your existence under the sun. I've heard a lot of messages from ecclesiastes 3 i'm sure you have too because it's a popular it's a beautiful poem but very few of them you can be the judge as far as your experience very few of them ever go into the prose part because it kind of ruins the beauty of the part before as far as i know it in the song the birds use they didn't really get into the next two paragraphs but the next two paragraphs are have what we need in order to contextualize all that and make sense of it. Look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Well, it's implied, nothing. Verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. But then here it is in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. I wish he had said he made most of that stuff. At least the positive part of those pears. Beautiful. The rest of it, well, the devil's running around loose because of sin and he just kind of, you know, gets away with stuff and we write it off because in the end we'll live in heaven. That's not what he says at all. He says everything. Contextually, it has to do with the contents of that poem in its time. Now, I'm sure you've been to tragic, heart-wrenching funerals that just didn't make sense. But in this building, we've had beautiful services at the end of a life well spent where God used that person's life to change the lives of many. They're in glory now, and they're just ahead of the rest of us who hope to be because of the grace we have in Jesus. So I, I think we could credit him that... That's certainly a possibility, but it might take some thinking through because that's not the way our hearts are wired up. We would push back on that. He says, Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This goes back to that opening statement. We're bound by time and God is not. But even those of us that wear a watch, we have at least... Composite idea of eternity even if we have no reference point for it does that make sense even though we, none of us have, have lived an eternity and it's hard for us to think backward in infinity or forward into infinity but don't we really pay good money to hear a good movie talk about time travel Or what it's like in a place we've never been before. Or what it would be like to live eternally. Don't we really like the sermons about heaven and eternity? It's because there's this hole in our being. He's put eternity into our hearts. But strangely enough, nothing under the sun fits in that hole and satisfies it. Now we don't even have a reference point for it. It's there, we have a longing, a hunger, but nothing to feed it with, much less anything to satisfy it. And he says, yet so that he cannot find out what has been done from the beginning to the end. It's designed that way. You get a taste, but I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen. You'll have to see it for yourself when it's your turn. So let's try to think this through, because that's some good stuff. All grown-ups, here's what we're thinking about are like children when it comes to our own lives and God's ordering of them. How so? Well, again, God doesn't wear a watch, but we do. Everything in our lives are linear. Everything has a schedule, a calendar, a period of time. We even measure our time, even short or long, but it's still time. But God isn't bound by these things. And because of this difference, it's almost impossible to see his perspective from ours. The reason why I use children, same as grown-ups, think about raising your own children. Is it not true that they come into this world totally dependent on you with no understanding whatsoever? As they grow and mature, they learn things and they can do things for themselves. But for most of the time that they live in your home... They're trusting you for what's next. You've been down the road further, so you have knowledge of what's down the road that they do not. It's not the most efficient way to teach and to learn, is it? There's a lot of mistakes. Uh, How many of you have the type of children where you just tell them something once and they've got it from there on out? We've got four, but none of them came out that way. Some of them we tell more than others, and in some ways we tell more to others than one or the other in different kind of ways. What gets our children through this life in many ways is a blind trust in the fact that the parents have been down the road further and trust that whatever's down there that they can't see is going to be okay until a certain age where they question all of it I haven't got there yet but I remember thinking I don't know if my old man knows what I think he thinks he knows maybe I know better that's just adolescence isn't it we grow out of it and then we go back and we say mom and dad you didn't tell us the half of this stuff this is the biggest mess we've ever seen in our lives here have this and this one and the other two We're going to go to the beach. We might not come back. Um, But do you see the poem playing out and just thinking your way through the cycles of life? But think of it in the perspective of us as Christians and God as a timeless God and we're stuck here on a planet bound by a watch. He is not. So the amount of trust that we place in Him to carry us into a place we've never been says everything about how we spend our time while we're here waiting. Part of being wise in this world is learning to accept that we only have a very limited access to the big picture. It's not that we don't want the big picture, we really do. But it's because God has put eternity in our hearts, just enough to want it real bad, but in his wisdom refrains from revealing it to us. We aren't meant to know what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's for him to know and for us to find out. If I had a time machine, I think I'd be one of those guys that'd be scared to go into the future. I'd go in the past all the time. There's so many things I'd want to watch take place. But the future has its uncertainty, doesn't it? I think the older they get, the older you get the more reluctant you are to venture into that, but just to take day by day, one at a time. God is not being unkind by not sharing the big picture. It's just that we're not built to understand such things not yet. And just like with parenting, where trust rests on the character of the parents, if the parents are good and kind and wise, The child who can't see the beginning to the end has nothing to fear. Spiritually speaking, neither does the child of God, if we trust Him. Parents, this is where you'll have your work cut out for you, by knowing the wisdom of telling them enough, but not too much, and having character and being good and wise, such that even though you make mistakes, your children see that you're real and that this book has authority over your life and they'll trust you. It's parents who don't have any of that or children that don't have that that have to kind of go at it on their own. And there can be more pain than is useful. There is such a thing as excessive pain under the sun because of our sins. But look at verse 14. He gives us even more and this is helpful. I perceive that whatever God does, whatever God does, endures forever that's totally opposite from everything that he said so far everything we do comes to nothingness but whatever God does endures forever nothing can be added to it or taken away so you can't trifle with what God does it's fixed God has done it so that people fear before him that goes right along with his putting eternity in our hearts and then holding all the cards as to what it involves there's certain things that he does that makes us step back and say, you know what, we're not steering this ship such as we thought we were. And it it lends a, a, a fear, a healthy respect, maybe awe for who he is and what he does. Some people might not like that at all, to look at God in that light. He goes on, that which is already has been, that which is to be, already has been in this way a little different than when he said something similar is he saying all this is fixed you're making your decisions you think you're writing the pages of your your own book but God has seen the end of it he's appointed your day of death just like he appointed your day of birth that's kind of hard to think of isn't it And then he says, God seeks what has been driven away. Now, you've got a whole full playground there with the commentators as to what that means. And sometimes it's all over the map. But if there seems to be any sort of consensus, they seem to think that whatever has been driven away, perhaps the essence of what Solomon has been calling vanity all along, Uh, The breath we know is life that's here and then is, is extinguished. Or what we read over a while ago where he said, I went looking for justice and I found wickedness in its place. I looked for righteousness. I found more wickedness in its place. Where did the justice go and where did the righteousness go? What drove it off? What blew it away? Well, in this case, God seeks what has been driven away as if to say God keeps up with everything we cannot. Now where Solomon has been basically ignoring everything over what's under the sun, he's getting involved in that quite a lot here. So it's not that there is a good and a bad and everything in between and we just deal with it. He's saying here that he makes all these things beautiful and it's time. And not only that... He'll bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. And I want to add something else because I think we could all take a little survey and just write a list of the things that are driven away in this life and wonder where they go. What happens to our memories? Where do they go? All you need to do is watch someone that you love who you've shared a life worth of memories with And watch those memories evaporate. Uh, Corey, she's keeping the children down the hall, but her grandfather went home to be with his Lord after a decline in health along with dementia. And and she can tell you the day where he did not call her what he called her since she was born. He called her his favorite granddaughter because she was his only granddaughter. But that's what he called her. And there was a day when he didn't, because he didn't see her for who she was, just a nice girl. And he maintained his sweet character through this whole thing. But you'd watch on his face the confusion, and you'd watch on his wife's face agony. It's gone. Where does it go? And I remember sitting somewhere after the funeral and and saying, I have no doubt that the God who puts our tears in His bottle, as it's described, catalogs and preserves every last one of our memories. And if He's going to separate our sin as far as us from the east to the west, it's probably likely all the awful memories associated with our sins against Him and maybe each other just disappear and are forgotten and buried at the bottom of the ocean. But the good stuff, I think we keep it. Now, there's a lot to think about here. I mean, you could think through the stages of your life almost to the tune of these songs that we're familiar with. I usually talk through some of this stuff with my wife before I bring it and serve it to you all. She's a good taste tester. And I just thought, you know, this past week was vacation Bible school. And I remember the first one of those I ever went to. And I think they began when I was about nine or ten at the church in Danville. The fifth grade one was my favorite. It had a, a an, an ocean island type theme. So everything was about the beach. Um, and it wasn't long after that that I started working in vacation Bible schools as a volunteer. You know, a, a grunt or a gopher. I'd get ice, take it outside and, so it could melt. Um... And then there was a time where I went to another ministry and put together a VBS and worked there. And then I worked as an employee of that church, planning a lot of stuff, putting the music together, putting big old subwoofers and strobing lights and all those crazy things to make kids scream like they've lost their minds. And it's, it's great. And then you put them in another room and you control the lighting and the music so that they sit down and be quiet so you can teach them something. had a ball with it and then I remember when my kids went for the first time and that's when I really started trying to work as hard as I could to make their eyes show the most excitement that I've ever seen and then I get here and my kids are helping in vacation Bible school maybe they'll be working you know or planning one and then their kids and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on but how fast does that fly by? right out the window unless you stop and read a poem like this and then cry like a dummy in your room just trying to think where did it all go? this is a emotional poem that pulls sentimentality out of even the most stone hardened and wooden of us people because it's where we live we lived through all this type of thing everything that comes our way comes through the Father the Son and the Spirit all of that stuff some would prefer a one-dimensional God they would like to think of God as giving life but not appointing the time of death same with planting and building but not a God who would uproot or tear down anything There's going to come a time where we may build another building on this campus. There may come a time where they tear it all down. Maybe, I'd love to think that there comes a time when most, if not every one of us, are missing. And they've got to figure out what to do with it. Maybe it'll fill up with a bunch of questions. Where did they go? Who knows? We can't see that far down the road, can we? But in other words, to know God and understand our place in this world that he made we must accept both halves of each pair and what they tell us about God's love for us can you be happy with both sides of that poem the birth and the death what about the love and the hate we got through the embracing and refraining from embracing building tearing down planting All of it has its perfect time, but we're kind of off with that sometimes, right? Sometimes we plant too soon. Sometimes we harvest too soon. Sometimes there's a frost that runs through the Carolinas and takes out a state and a half worth of every peach that happened to exist in the form of a bloom that fell off on the ground. Those things happen. But they're all beautiful in their time if we trust the Lord over the sun what do we do with this I felt it best to just have one point of application today sometimes there's a what's the classic sermon three points in a poem well this is one poem and a point it's not pointless we got at least one and here it is God alone has perfect timing and he always knows what time it is we can't say that about ourselves and the place where we see God's timeliness most clearly is in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. As the Creator who ordered the rhythm of the universe, He is Lord over time. Especially in the Gospels, we see a Savior who always knew what time it was. There's a time for Him to be born. Just the right time, in fact. The Bible says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Jesus began his ministry with the announcement, the time is at hand. At just the right time, when the Jews were weary of trying to uh, and failing to keep God's law, when the Gentiles were tired of serving the old pagan gods, when the Greeks had given the world a common language, that was very important, and when the Romans had established peace and relatively safe travel across the Mediterranean, perfect for spreading such a gospel, Jesus came with the message of salvation for the whole world. Then there was also time for Jesus to die, not a day before or a day after, but on an appointed day. People had tried to kill Jesus for years, but until his hour had come, it wasn't going to happen. The Bible says that at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly and then rose from the dead on the third day, again, according to the scripture. He was never late, never early, but always right on time. Jesus knew when it was time to heal. He knew when it was time to tear down the sham of those money changers in the temple. Just think of what we learned in John. He knew when it was time to build up the church on the rock of Peter's confession. The man of sorrows knew when to mourn. The good shepherd knew when to weep over the lost sheep of Israel. He also rejoiced in the work of the Holy Spirit when the men came back from their journey, having spread the gospel. Jesus knew when to seek for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He knew when to lose the goats that refused to hear his voice. He knew when to embrace tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, but rejected the proud who insisted they were righteous enough to please God without him. Jesus knew when to speak, teaching, preaching, telling stories, explaining the law. But when it came to his trial, he didn't speak at all, just as it was prophesied. As a sheep before his shears were dumb. We could go on with this all day. I think the point has been made. But he knew the right time for everything. He still does. He calls us to make the best use of every moment. He still meets sinners. In repentance. And wondrously turns their lives around. He still has time to comfort those. That are lost. So. Because of his lordship over time, it's just not for the big events of history, but also for our own everyday experiences. You remember I introduced to you uh, months ago a book I read from it, uh, Every Moment Holy. It's a liturgy by this, uh, I think his name is Douglas McKelvey. It's a great book. We should get some of those and put them up in the office where you can get one if you'd like. If If it sounds good, let us know. We'll get some. But one of the best ways to avoid so far the vanity of life, chapter 3, Solomon tells us how to do it. Know what to do with your time. Because after all, how we spend our time is how we spend our lives, isn't it? It all adds up. I kind of struggled as to what to do to land this plane. I mean... um, Preparing for something like this and thinking through a poem that can make your life flash before your eyes is kind of an emotional uh, roller coaster. But last night I thought of something that my father had told me. Uh, that has stuck with me and has changed over time. You know how you'll be given a piece of advice and when it's given to you, it might not mean much. It might take you a long time before you even remember to use it. But then as the cycles and patterns of life and you grow up and you've had more ways to use whatever that advice is, it can come back and and go from what you had figured to be just something I'll catalog or put on a shelf turns to absolute gold. If we're remembering back, I do remember, I was eight, that's that's the age of our youngest, when uh, Dad received a call to ministry in Virginia. We moved from Charlotte, from, uh, you know, I didn't know it was called high-density housing until I moved here. Because for the last 30 years, we lived in Virginia, my parents said, we're moving to the country. I didn't know what that meant. I, I thought they're probably going to use that music I don't like so much there in the country they did um, but just driving through all these tobacco fields it was so different my job was to uh, make sure that our gerbil and an aquarium with all the sawdust in the bottom his name was Moses by the way lived a really long time he sat beside me in the back of the station wagon and we moved what I wasn't ready for was all the attention that a new church wants to dump on a new pastor and his family. They, they lined us up, you know, or stand there for a picture. I'm eight, and the rest of us, it was just three of us kids at the time, and uh, they gave us each a watch. I guess they, they gave mom and dad something. Somebody said, well, we've got to give the kids something too. So... uh we had these Swatch Watches. And you remember how far back those go? They had a the little rubber band on the front. Hey, this is a great church. I got a Swatch Watch. My friends don't have a Swatch Watch. But we had to stand there and take the picture and then one like this. And then we had this uh, big table. We had to stand behind it, and it. had a cake on the front of it. And the cake was shaped like the house we just moved into. I mean, like Detailed. And I'm sitting there saying, who's going to eat the front door? And my brother's saying, I hope they save me the garage. It's bigger. Just the stuff you remember from all this. That's the view of church and a massive move from the mind of an eight-year-old. But as I stayed, uh, went off to college, felt a call on my own life, went to Bible school. Uh, Dad helped me with that, mostly hands-off, so he didn't... Uh, you know, add things to the picture that could push me in a place the Lord hadn't called me. And then I'd go off to another church and call my dad all the time, needing all types of his experience that I didn't have, and then coming back to work alongside him for about 10 years. Learning what a pastor does on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Thursday and a Friday. I knew all about what they do on Sundays That's just scratching the surface. So I learned that when they called my father, it's basically a a group of people who say, will you shoulder this responsibility? Will you take this book and teach us what we need to know? Will you weep with us when we're weeping? Will you rejoice with us when we're rejoicing? Will you walk point for us in situations we don't know what to do through? Will you help us figure out if we should build or tear down? All this stuff. So for all this time, our family had to share my daddy with a big family. And there were good times and there were bad times. There were times I said, you can have all this. I'd rather have my daddy back. I'll give you my watch and trade for my daddy. I didn't do that a lot because I felt like if somebody needed him it was for a good reason and that God gave him answers the rest of us don't have so it makes sense but working for him was a totally different experience because I'm getting to watch where I might wind up you know 30 years later or so so about the time I figured out what it meant When they called him, I had started to notice that some things were going wrong. And because I'm his son and had a front row in the church and also a front row in his house and had edited his uh, messages and the video stuff we had on television for a while, I could finish his sentences in the pulpit. And I noticed that some of those sentences didn't come out as easy as they used to. And I noticed that the, uh, that the catalog of, of things that could be drawn on in order to communicate something from Scripture was narrowing. Some of that's older age. That happens to all of us, right there out of the poem. When your kids are young, you focus on what young kids do. When they're in college, you focus on what they're doing in college. When they get married, you're focused on their grandbabies. And as far as what you consider important out of your Bibles, you know, there's stuff for for when you're young. There's stuff for when you're older. That all changes. That's all normal. But this was different. And at a certain point, we were stuck between what to do. And I can remember with vivid clarity, it was my birthday, sitting in a chair in my father's study. And other men gathered in there as well. Some who had been his deacon chairman. Men who'd been there when we got there. Men who had served alongside in the trenches, on the mountaintop, in the valley. These were men I trusted, that he trusted. With his kids and everything else. And I watched him summon the honor and dignity that he used to carry that responsibility for almost 30 years. To look those men in the eye and say, I can't do it anymore. And I'll have to hand this back to you. And you'll have to find someone else to do it. Now, in time, we would learn it's diagnosis. It's Alzheimer's. But at a certain point, we don't know that. It doesn't make sense. The most vexing, frustrating thing in all the world is to try to get up in front of people and do what you've done for 30 years, but it just won't work. And then to read a poem where a man says that all of that is beautiful in its own time. That there's one over the sun that we all live under writing the story who already knew about this part before it ever happened. Who already knew that my address would be Fuquay Verena rather than Ringgold. I didn't know any of this. We tried to plan our way through things like that. And in an instant, all of it's changed. And from this perspective, would not have changed any of it. Nor would my father. But let me tell you what he told me. And what has made sense the more I've used it. And especially through the story you just heard. What he told me sometime, I don't know, year one or two or whatever, in that ministry when I was in my early 20s. He said, son... One of the most difficult things you're ever going to learn how to do is decide where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing. Because you can only be at one place at one time. And in your position, whatever you're doing, you're going to have not just maybe a handful of options or dozens of options, but maybe hundreds of options. And along with each of those options, there are going to be people connected. Who, because it's their option, are going to think that that's what you're supposed to do. But you can't do them all. You're going to have to do one at a time. And you'll need to know which one to do at which time. And you've got a family at home, which you can't trade for a ministry. God will get you for that. It's not the way He did it. It's not the way He designed So watching my father swallow his own medicine when he perceived that it was a time to end what had once begun. It's probably one of the most growing moments of my life, most difficult moments of my life, and one of the most moments that began what would be a whirlwind of change that none of us expected But he was right. you got to know where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing. Your kids' lives are on the line. Your husband or wife's life is on the line. Your testimony is on the line. And you don't have much of it to go around. It's just a breath. And then that song came to my mind. I'm sure you all have sung it before. In his time... He makes all things beautiful, in His time. How's the rest of it go? Lord, show me something. I forget it, but you've you've sung the song. If I got through it once, it'd all come back. Like visiting one time, as a college student at Liberty, in my twenties, I went visiting with a guy, and we walked in the front door of a house. And in a second, I knew, I've been here before. It's a house we spent a year in when I was six. You forget about it until it comes back, right? Don't you hope that the Lord is keeping all those memories? All the days you were somewhere else while your kids were doing something and you missed it. He might even have some of that on a shelf too, I don't know. But I'm glad we serve the God over the sun who makes all things beautiful in His time. You know what time it is now? Time to remember Him like He asked us to in communion. So what we'll do right now is we'll have a time of introspection. And we might have some things to pray about now that we didn't have or didn't think about before this sermon began. But this is our time to get our heart in the right place, to ask the Lord to bring to our mind sins we need to confess. Uh, we usually say uh, at, at this point in a message before communion, uh, we don't practice closed communion at Wake Chapel. That's where only the membership partake in communion. We'd rather call it close communion. If you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if you're saved and you know it, doesn't matter what member of what church. If you're here today, we invite you to participate along with us. But to do this not being saved and you know it is really to strip it of all of its meaning as we see in Scripture. It wouldn't be a wise thing to do at all. And then as far as children go, mom and dad know best as to whether or not these children know what it means. And if they don't know what it means, it's probably better to wait till later when they do know what it means. But that said... We'll let the piano play. I'm going to take a seat here. In a few moments, I'll come back. And I'll ask the uh, uh, deacons who will be serving you to come join me on the platform. But for now, let's just take some time and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, as we continue this season of prayer, at the close of time together with you, Lord, would we... Would you impress upon our mind, even our hearts, our emotions, the preciousness of time spent at your feet, looking in awe at your word that you've preserved for us, the good things that you've given us, the people you put in our lives, so that you could love us through them, all the memories wrapped up in our heads, emotions that come along with them, Lord, even the pain and the suffering that has made us better has made us see You more clearly. Has given us the ability to acknowledge that You know us best. Lord, would You forgive us of our sins. These things that that clutter our relationship. Lord, would we keep short sin account. And Lord, would you prepare us even now as we take these elements that don't look like much, don't taste like much, aren't made out of much, but they represent the most precious thing we know, the body and the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, continue to deal with, move, prompt our hearts. As we continue this prayerful moment, we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Deacons, if you would join me, please. Kemp Johnson is going to pray for the bread.
1: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this bread that we're about to take together as your body of believers. Thank you for giving us the
0: blessing of remembering what it represents when you gave your body for our sins. We also thank you for the future in heaven that it represents for all that have placed their faith and trust in you alone. In Christ Jesus' name, Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Olin Fuquay will pray
1: for the cup. Will you bow your heads, please? Will you open your hearts as we talk to our God? Father, this is a time of remembrance, remembering the blood of Jesus. It washes away all sin, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And Father, we read that this cup is symbolically filled with your blood. We have taken a few moments to cleanse our hearts. a time of communion with you, a time that we share with you our deepest thoughts and those things that are on our hearts. And it's not that we do that, that you would be informed. Father, it's that we do that so that we might draw closer to you. And that is our time of communion. We pray, Father, that as we take this cup, that it would be meaningful that we would remember the things that we have done here today. We pray, Father, that that would take us into this coming week ready to do your will, ready to be obedient, ready to witness. ask all these things in the name of Christ Jesus, that name above all other names, amen.
0: Take your seat, and it has been done as the Lord commanded.